Welcome to the Open Adoption Project. We're the Nelsons. I am Lynette. And I'm Sean. In recognition of National Adoption Month, we have decided as a podcast family to create a little more content. Uh, Lynette and I and Alicia Gallagher, who is our Director of Communications, are doing some extra interviews and conversations with friends to help us in the adoption community learn more. So, during the month of November, you can expect that we'll be in your newsfeed a little bit more. We hope that this is valuable to you and that it enriches your National Adoption Month. Hi, everyone. I'm Alicia Gallagher, Director of Communications at the Open Adoption Project. Today, we welcome Christelle Pellicure to the podcast. Christelle joins us to share her experience as a transracial adoptee. She was adopted at the age of 10 from Madagascar to France and for much of her young life lived in a white dominant environment. Through her own work to reconnect with her racial and cultural identity, she's now an adoptee coach helping Black adoptees address the hardships they've experienced and begin to embrace their full identities. Christelle, thank you so much for being here with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm excited to have this conversation. (laughs) Yes, yes, I am too. Just to start things off, can you tell us about yourself. What is your story? There's so much um, already that, that you know, just in the intro that um, we just want to dive into. So we'll just turn it over to you. Uh, you can tell us about yourself. Okay. So, um, wow. Well, just start. Well, let's start from the beginning. I was born in Madagascar, um, which is in, a lot of people don't actually know where Madagascar is, but it's in one of the highlands of the coast of Africa. And I was adopted in South of France when I was 10. So I had, I've got a lot of memory from Madagascar by the time I was adopted. Uh, and as you mentioned in my intro, um, it was quite a white dominant area in South of France. So it was kind of a culture shock when I arrived in France because I didn't see many people who look like me. And the culture was very different in terms of what you eat, what the weather, the uh, how you dress, everything, the language. Um, so that was kind of a culture shock in itself to to adapt. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's been a bit of struggle. My teenagehood was around even to try to understand who I was and how I fit in with my adoption, um, but also struggling with a lot of emotion that I didn't know at the time. It was linked to my adoption. Um, It's only later on in my adulthood that I understood that some of the the things that I was struggling with was linked to adoption because I haven't really fully grieved things uh, and emotions uh, along the way. So it's been a journey of... um, rediscovering myself and understanding what my journey has been. But at the same time, um, I also left France when I was 18 to to go to university in the UK. And then I kind of get involved in the Black community in the UK. And I did a lot of work recently, uh, especially I've been um, doing a lot of work on African history. So I was working with African and Caribbean community. So that really helped me to understand um, my heritage and my history and learning about African history, African culture. So that's I think that through that process, I really learned to to know about my own identity and where I fit in and how to to I suppose embrace both 
the African side of me, but also my upbringing in France and living in the UK uh, at the same time. So bringing everything into one, um, because as a transracial adoptee, very often we get stuck in those two worlds and we don't know where we belong. Uh, but for me to be able to move forward, I had to reconcile those two worlds to be able to to be who I am today. Yeah, I really like how you said it on your website too. I'll just read a sentence that stood out to me from that. You said, for a long time, I didn't realize that my adoption caused so much trauma in me. Mm -hmm. How old do you think you were when you started to realize that your adoption had caused trauma? It's in my 20s. I mean, I 20, I had a daughter, which in itself was a, a challenge because I was still trying to figure out who I was. And here I am having to care for a child myself. Um, and I think no, seeing a human being that looked like you, because for a long time I was in a white environment and I didn't have anyone to connect who just looked like me. And it's it's I think at that moment all the emotions comes back because the fear that am I good enough to take care of this child? Um how how do I move on? Who am I even to, to bring right. this child to the world? Um how am I gonna teach her about our heritage? I don't know anything about that. So it's a lot of question was coming back when she was born and um it's. I think then I wanted to learn a lot more about my uh, my heritage. I went back to Madagascar in 2010. Um, and originally it wasn't really to meet up with my birth family, but it was more about me wanting to reconnect with Africa. But one thing led to another. I did end up going to see my family and I wasn't prepared at all at the time either. And I think that also pushed all the emotion upwards um, at the time and I think as my daughter was growing up I could see that she was struggling it's always like just generational trauma I could see some of the thing I was struggling she was carrying forward and so that's where I really needed to question myself and I cannot allow her to be in that same position even if she's not adopted mm -hmm. thing she's carrying for myself because I have not healed from my own trauma so having to to take that journey and question how can I provide the better you know journey for herself I think that really pushed me to question it and to see that actually I've never really grieved because the reason I was adopted is my birth mother passed away so I was put. I was left with the Catholic missionary who were based in the village where I was at the time, and then I went to uh, orphanage before being adopted in France. So I think when I had my daughter and all the emotion came through, then I realized, wow, I've never really grieved about my mother's death. I was ten, but yet I didn't have the process of you know, coming to town with that, I've just suppressed all those emotion inside me. Um, and and I think my adoptive parents were not prepared either because they didn't really have that much information about what's happened. So they didn't really know that I needed to grieve about my mother's loss. But I would say, you know, now knowing the things that I know, adoption is a separation. So any separation 
will create uh, some trauma. So I think even in that itself, even if my mother didn't pass away, there is still separation and there is trauma attached to that. And also as I, yeah, I grew up, I think then realized, you know, my I was 10 year old. So there is already a lot of things that I remember, although some of it I've suppressed again. So I forgot a lot of my uh, childhood in Madagascar, but there's things that, I think the only thing that I remember is the traumatic period of my life. So when there is like natural disaster and we had a cyclone in Madagascar, I vividly remember those things. Um, at five-year-old, I nearly drowned in the river and I, have, I vividly remember those things as well. So and those are the things that actually I've not even processed. So it's normal that now all the spirit and all those emotions and uh, I don't really know who I am. And on top of that, with the adoption, I suppose, is I wasn't... My parents, you know, the first year I arrived in France, my mom had me, um, homeschooled me. So she was very present. But I think uh, there was no preparation on how... I think because they, they're not used to um, having... A black community around them so they were not prepared to receive a, a black child and care for for her so there was no preparation in terms of how to support her into a white community and a white culture so for me i felt that that i had to suppress everything that i was and suppress all my cult my own culture because i didn't speak my own language anymore i I didn't dress the same way as I used to dress in Madagascar. I didn't eat the same food, but none of those were explained to me. And I think I took those quite hard and suppressed the, who I was for 10 years. So then they had it to be assimilated to this new culture and become this new person and follow these new rules. It's it's the same. My In Madagascar, I was raised quite liberal. You know, I was up to the age of 10, I would run around in the streets Arrive in France, it's a very structured upbringing. I was in a Catholic family and, you know, going to church, which is something I, I was not used to to be doing. So I think a lot of those then had it to almost to comply to this new life and behave a, a very different way, not to, to create trouble, I suppose, for the family and uh, to be the model child in a way. But I know it's also conflicting inside me. And I think those are the emotions that I didn't know at the time that yeah. was created so, by the adoption itself. The process just make all those emotions clash. Yeah. Well, as you're describing all of that, it sounds like it would be hard to find room to actually be able to grieve the loss of your mother and your culture because you have so many things that are present that you're having to cope with the mm. different food and the different dress and the people looking different. Those are all in your face 100% of the time. And there's just not this, this room, unless it's really intentional to grieve these unseen losses as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you said that you reconnected with your birth family. What was, what was that experience like? A roller coaster. <laughs> yeah, I, um, I mean, there is the emotion of like the happiness of reconnecting with, um, even just going back to where me and my mother lived. So 
going, you know, standing in that um, compound where we lived was just so amazing because I, mean, I still yelled all you remember things and just like all the emotion floating of um, memories of being in that space when I was a child and seeing my mother uh, in my mind and, you know, the house, um, that was all very overwhelming. Um, and also because, you know, everybody was so welcoming in a way you know when I when I find my uncle it was just a big party you know they they had dancing and cooking as soon as I realized I was back um were you in your 20s when when you went back there or were you uh, I was in my twin late 20s so 2000 yeah and um but the aftermath of that has been the difficult part because people have not seen it for many years and suddenly they know you're in the West and, you know, there is this image that, you know, in the West you've got money. And um, so when I was back in the UK after the trip, it was, you know, all the communication was about trying to support them. Uh, They wanted my niece to come and stay with me. Um, And I was a single mother at the time, overwhelmed with my own responsibility as a mother and um and the everyday life and I I couldn't see myself having to welcome my niece and have her to stay with us and I think they couldn't understand it so the relationship can deteriorate over time and I had to distance myself because it was just too much for me um but also again it, it creates a lot of emotion because then there is the guilt and you always should be able to support your family. Um, you have yeah, a better life than men. Yeah, and you have this desire yeah. to be able to support them, but knowing what your own limits are, mm. that, yeah. it, that would be very difficult. Exactly. So it's uh, it's been like a bittersweet moment just reconnecting. Um, and I am I'm still quite distant I mean my my brother passed away in Madagascar last year and again that was a very difficult moment because I decided to keep my distance but at the same time I was like oh you would have been the last person I could really reconnect and really understand my story because we lived together and he knew my mother better than anyone else so for me to to get the 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 question I had, I think was the best, the closest of the person that I could have asked. And now he's gone. Was he an? Older so that was difficult. Pardon? Was he an older brother? Yes. Yes. So oh, he, he he stayed in Madagascar. So um, we we kind of when I was adopted, we lost contact. But when I went back, we kind of reconnected. Although we didn't see each other because we were in a different part of the island. Um, but we kind of kept contact, but still me keeping distance, we didn't really become that close at the same time, but there was that regret of not reconnecting at the same time. It seems like, I don't know if that's something that people outside the adoption community consider a lot. When they see, when they know someone who's adopted, I think people are very encouraging and supportive of them finding their birth family but they might not always 
know what's going on in the mind of an adoptee of you're opening a new box of, Mm. of opportunity. It could be wonderful and there could be these great connections, but then like in your experience, new trauma could happen that inspires new feelings of current situations with the family that makes it hard to cope with now when before you've sort of dealt with the past, but then you're opening it all up again, if you reconnect with birth family. So that is, I appreciate you sharing that because that's not often talked about. Yeah. And I think, I mean, us as an adoptee as well, we, you know, we create all sorts of narrative in our head before that reunion, because, you know, we've got this wonderful idea that is going to be so beautiful reconnecting with our birth family and like you say, some people have had really beautiful story of reunion, but it's not always that straightforward in many cases. Um, and I, and that's why I say I wasn't prepared because in my head, if I was going to be reconnected to my family, it was gonna. I saw it very differently to the way uh, it happened. Um, I I mean. Looking back, I don't regret meeting them all because I probably would not have gone to, to have this reconnection if I didn't if it didn't happen the way it happened. So I am glad I still managed to go and you know meet my uncles in very different um surroundings that would have been raised in the West and um being able to see that you know that moment was you know so welcoming and you know I keep that memory very dear um, so I don't regret it it says a lot of emotion that came after that for sure that needed to be processed but I think even if I had to do it again I will do it again um, because I still feel like I then had a connection with my family instead of being kept in the dark forever that you know and also because part of it is when I went back and met my uncle my uncle was didn't even realize I was adopted. And that has been a big thing in my whole life that, oh, my whole family, my mother passed away and my whole family abandoned me. Nobody came for me. Whereas, and that is a question we still not resolve in my adoption story today is what's happened between my mother left me at the Catholic missionary and me being adopted. So why, why was I put into an orphanage when my family was still living in the village. Um, so there's a lot of that that I don't have any answer uh, at the moment. And the people were at the Catholic missionary at the time have all passed away now. So I would get a straight answer <laughs> to that. But so that's kind of is some of the the problem I had around abandonment. So I am glad that if I didn't go over there, I would still feel today that my whole family abandoned me, but that wasn't the case. So it's, yeah, it's, you have to take, I think for me, the way I saw it is I take the good side of that journey and keep that. And, you know, everything is, life is not always straightforward. So just take the good side of it and move with that. Yeah. Was your adoptive family supportive of you reconnecting with your birth family? Um, yes and no. Uh, so I received a, a letter from my half-sister from Madagascar when I was 15. And again, I don't know how she managed to find my address because they're not supposed to have known where I've gone. So there's, again, there's that 
not very clear line what's happened, how she managed to discover that. But and at the time when I told my parents, oh, it's my sister who's writing, they were very um cautious and probably for the good reason that they wanted to protect me that I don't, you know, get into a scam or something. Um so I suppose at the time I didn't really push it. I just like, okay, maybe it's better that I don't follow this up because at the time I didn't even realize I had a half sister. So in my mind, it could have been anybody else. And when my parents saying to be cautious, I was like, okay, I'm just leaving it. But um, I don't know. I think, like I said, when my daughter was born and I was asking a lot of questions, that's when then I decided to respond to that letter. And but by the time I was, you know, it was in my 20s and I was old enough to do those steps by myself. So I didn't really uh, ask, I suppose, for permission from my parents to just take the steps. Um, yeah, so I think it just naturally just went mm-hmm. in, but it, they didn't, I suppose they didn't like from their own initiative to say, oh, let's go and find your birth family. So it's not that process. So growing up, when you had questions about your birth family or your your culture or your your story from the first 10 years of your life, what were, what were those conversations like? Did you feel like your parents did the best they could to answer those questions? Or did you feel like things were you know, your feelings were put aside because it was uncomfortable conversations. What was, what was that part of it like for you and your parents? We didn't really have those conversations. That's the, that the interesting thing about it because that's why I say it's like, it's always almost like I had to assimilate myself to everything. So it's almost like that part of my life was completely forgotten. Um, I think you know, some of this conversation might have happened when it's time to do my hair because I remember my mother was good enough to find a black hairdresser and you know drive two hours away in the big in the a bigger town um, and go to an African hairdresser. Um, but even that it wasn't. We didn't really have any deep conversation. She would drive me there and pick me up after my hair was done. Um, and that's that was not right at the beginning. I think she was taking me to a white hairdresser for a long time until oh. realizing that my hair was not taking it. <laughs> so right. I think eventually having to find an alternative. And um, but also once a year we used to to have like a reunion with all the the children that has been adopted from the same agency uh, in France. So for most of my teenagehood, I suppose we had that kind of connection. So I would meet all those children um, in that process. So I guess my my parents still have a little bit of advice, I suppose, where to go from the agency in terms of what to to care. And and at this time, the, the agency would bring like a present back from Madagascar to a lot of the children, or there would be like a store where my parents would buy t-shirt and bags from Madagascar which are some of them I still have funny enough but those were the I think the only time you will have kind of mentioned about the culture side we were not that embedded in in learning about the culture yeah there um there is a book 
that I just finished reading. Maybe you've read it too. It's called Black is the Body by Emily Bernard. Um, It is excellent. It is a book of essays by an English professor at uh, what university is she in? Let's see. At the University of Vermont. And she's Black. She's married to a white man. And they adopted two girls from from Africa. I believe it was Ethiopia. And she writes about the the story that she tried to tell her daughters about, um, just about their adoption story, because not a lot was known. And so I'm, I want to read part of it to you, because this is coming from her perspective as an adoptive parent. And I want to know for you as an adoptee, would this kind of narrative be helpful um, for transracial adoptees? Um, okay, so let me find it here. It says, this is what she would tell her daughters. You are adored on two continents. You have two worlds, two countries, two languages, and two stories about how you came to be. And she said, so far, the strategy seems to be working. Um, My daughters belong to a history preserved in the recesses of their minds and hearts, in their bodies too, perhaps down to the level of the self. Where the girls' identities reside in the worlds between past and present, here and there, that is a story that they will make up on their own. Do you have any thoughts or reactions to that narrative that a parent could tell to an adoptee? Yeah, I think I believe that's a that's a very positive message and uh, narrative to because there's they're still trying to empower our daughters that you know this is where you're coming from and this is um, where you are now, so the past and the present. And that's what I was saying at the beginning, you know, I had to reconcile both my African side and my Western upbringing um, because it cannot be one or the other, even if you want to, because those things have happened in your life. And I think if you get that imprinted in you from early on, I think you will help your identity that, you know, you are this African child and you've been raised there and you're not just a Western entity, you know, there's more of you from your past that make up who you are. Um, So I feel um, that is important and I really respect all the parents uh, of transracial children who make the effort to to talk to their children about their cultural background and also to surround themselves of people who might look like their children and go to events who, that are run by a Black community in the case of a Black children. So really embedding the children in both lives. So, you know, in, if they're Black into the Black community, but also involve them in their white community. So having both sides, so the children can grow up to see that, you know, it's okay to be both in, in those both worlds. And they can from early on navigate those two worlds because in my case, having been in for so long in the white space, when I become when I went to the UK and realized, oh my goodness, I'm not in the village anymore. Everything is so different. There is black people. People are gonna tell you things that I've never heard before about race. So and some of it is not nice that being 
thrown at you and you don't understand those things. It's again, that's hard to the trauma in itself because you're not again, not prepared to the wide world that, you know, you've been so protected and in this little bubble of a white community, for my case, in this little bubble of South of France where you don't really see much diversity. And when I get to places like London, um, it's very different and you have to navigate very differently. That was, again, another new thing I have to navigate in itself. So I think if you, from the beginning, if you encourage your children um, to navigate those two worlds, it will make the life a lot easier when they grow up. When you say you, when you go to the UK, you go to London and you realize you have to navigate everything differently. Can you give examples of what that means for you? Well, in South of France, it's, you know, it's a village. I mean, you don't, you, you see the same faces all the time. In in London, it's, it has so many different nationality and culture um around and and it's even things like you know some part of london like you go to south london where it's, there's a a, black, a a predominantly black community i didn't feel comfortable even if though i was black i didn't feel comfortable to be in that space because it was so foreign for me at the time I, i'm i'm so for me i was just comfortable in the white space and this is where the the contradiction is for us as a transracial adoptee because we are in a black body but we navigate in a white space so when you put us in a black space we don't know how to behave or to to walk because we never had that learning people those two spaces function very differently and you know I I remember even when after moving to the UK for several years and moved to South London I still feel like I didn't know enough like going to the market there's food and vegetable I didn't even know that I should be knowing um and those things you feel like you feel then you know it's that sense of like I'm not white enough to be white and I'm not black enough to be black and you know I'm too black to be white and I'm not I'm not black enough to be black so that sense of like where do I fit I yeah I can't really fit in any space Um, so it's very difficult to to navigate how about now it sounds like you've had some time to live in these two different spaces and to confront some of the the trauma and the difficulty of having those separate identities and trying to merge them together. So how are you, how do you feel about it now? Do you feel comfortable in both spaces? Have you found this um, settledness or do you think you're still learning and searching a little bit? No, I think I'm comfortable now, uh, but it's been a long journey, I would say. And I think I couldn't do it for me, it was important that I go through that journey if I was going to support the adoptee. Um, and it's that reconciliation, being able to to feel comfortable with the two sides of me. Um, and it's also about being comfortable in your own skin. I think that self-worth is so important and having a lot of compassion for yourself, for your journey and accepting acceptance is important so this is my past 
it hasn't been beautiful. There's been beautiful moment, but it hasn't always been beautiful. And accepting that, uh, so you can move forward. Um, and and really taking what is good from both sides that really fit with me to be who I am today and just let go of the things that doesn't really serve me or doesn't resonate with me. And that is okay, even if it's those things that might, you know, for example, the Catholic religion. I was really raised in the Catholic religion and that for a long time was almost trapping me. I didn't feel like, I didn't want uh, upset my parents not to be Catholic anymore. So for a long time, I didn't know how to 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 go about it. But now I I feel comfortable to say that, you know, I believe in God, but I am not a practicing Catholic. And that has been freely, freeing to be able to say that to myself. So it's finding those place where what is comfortable for you and letting go of the things that are not comfortable um, from those both sides, you know, from your past, also from where you've been um, brought up and really just keep the thing that is comfortable. And that is what is going to make you you. Um, and I've built your own identity around what make you happy and make you feel comfortable. Have you been able to have conversations like this with your parents? We we tried. We tried. I mean, it's it's been a long journey because um, we had to about the religion, for example, because it's such a big uh, element of their life. Um, so I had to explain why I was stepping away from that religion because it didn't... Um, and in, it's not to disrespect them. I had it to explain it's not the lack of disrespect or because I was not grateful the way they raised me. It just, it didn't fit with me. And if I continue to live in that space, I will make myself sick because I, want, I was unhappy in that space. Um, and I think it was difficult for them to accept. But at the end of the day, if, you know, if you love your child, you allow them to be where they are. And I think they come to town that, you know, if I go to France and stay with them, I'm not going to go to church with them. So I think they come to town with that. Um, and a lot of different things around that, but it's, and I, I completely understand it from their point of view. They've also been raised into that space and that's all they know. So it's normal that that's what they gave to their children as well. Um, so it's, I know they're coming from a good space, um, but it's, yeah, it's reminding people that, you know, the children are their own person as well. So they might not grow exactly how you want them to be. I realized I didn't ask. You said children. Did you have brothers and sisters? So, well, so it's, it's my fam my parents was foster parents. So there was about five or six foster children in the house. Then they had two of their own biologic uh, children. And then there was two of us adopted. So it was a big house. Oh, um, wow. So how many kids altogether? Um, well, because the, the foster children would come and go. So it yeah. was never always the same. But, you know, it's it's it go between five and ten at a time. So it was, a, yeah, it was always lot of people around and were were there other black children in the home ever 
Yeah, so my uh, there was another girl who was adopted from Madagascar. So we she came after me. Uh, we're not blood related, but we are from the same country. And what was that like? How old were you when she was adopted as well? Uh, I think I was about 12. Um, so a couple of years after I've arrived. Um, yeah, that was an interesting because our journey is very different from mine. And that's again... Uh, I would say to parents who, who have who adopt children, you know, the children might not live that experience the same way, even though for us, we are both black, both from the same country, uh, but we lived the adoption very differently. Um, and part of it, I think, is because my sister stayed in South of France and, you know, in that small, small space and whereas I went to the UK and go to the big city, uh, lived a very different experience. Um, so she, she I w- it's what we call the complaint adoptee. She was, she was happy with her adoption. Whereas for me, I had all the trauma. But again, I would say, you know, she was a baby. She was two when she was adopted. I was 10. Again, we have a completely different experience. So again, it's, I suppose it's normal that we react in a very different way. Um but yeah, so it's it's not always uh, the same experience for two siblings that have been raised in the same family. So you said she was, so your parents adopted her when she was two? Yes. Okay. So then yeah. you were adopted. She was already, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What moments or experiences have you had that you could share that have helped you heal? Are there specific uh, times that you remember having a realization that things are better now than they were, or I found somebody who understands me. I feel like I'm healing. Can you share any of those moments with us? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's been quite you. Um, I think the birth of my daughter is definitely make me realize there was issues that I needed to address. And I think from then on, it was just trying to find tools and to help me heal. And what can I do to to make myself feel better? Um, so I've tried so many different modalities and, um, you know, therapy. Um, I've done some Reiki and kinesiology, all sorts of modalities. But I I think... Um, I think going to Madagascar has been definitely, um, it was hard, but I know healing is not easy. Um, it has been a defining moment because, like I said, I had this awareness that I was an abandoned by my family. So I, I could then accept that. So that was a very big moment for me. Um, what else? I think I, I did, um, a whole course around self-compassion and that has been really like a game changer because I didn't realize how much how deep my um it's almost like your self-hatred you know until I I put some self-compassion in myself the way I talked to myself I didn't realize that I was so negative with myself um and also I, I, during that process, I had to reconnect with my inner child and really learning to love that 
little that 10 year old me who, who arrived in France because she was lost. She had nobody really to, to be there for her. So having to reconnect of that child and really be compassionate and feeling love, I think that really helped me because then I could then accept myself as an adult. Um, and it's that acceptance of saying, it's okay, you are where you're supposed to be. Things will be okay. So I think, yeah, those and... Um, I've always had mentors and uh, coaches along the way as well. So I think that also helps. They've not always been in the space of adoption, but I would say people who are very aware of trauma-informed practices, um, and that have really helped me along the way. Um, Yeah, so it's a different modality. (laughs) Yeah, and with you reconnecting with your 10-year-old self, it's, it's like you're giving her the language that you didn't have at the time. You know, yeah. your parents didn't have that language necessarily. Because yeah. I think adoption in general has changed a lot over the decades. I I like to think there's a little bit more awareness generally around mental health and supporting adoptees. It still has a long, long way to go. But for your parents to not have language to give you, you're giving her that language so that you can heal. So I'm, yeah, I, that is. So yeah. And I think, language. I think that language is really important because like I said, when you grow up, you don't have the language, you don't understand what's going on. And even it's just putting a language, you know, to, what I'm feeling is shame and guilt, just understanding, putting something against it, then, okay. So I know what this is now. How can I, walk around that and heal that part of me and I think it's it, it, again that is it it's we've been so fragmented for the adoption and all the trauma it's like we separate we, we're disconnecting with our body and that is another thing that really helped me I suppose is reconnecting to my body because I was for a long time I was disconnecting um so doing a lot of movements um movement work has been really really uh useful for me uh, to to come back to my own body and reconnect with all this different part that I've let go because of the trauma. I think it was kind of a survival mode and um, hiding, <laughs> just a hiding place. So I, I wasn't really fully me. Uh, so having to then um, reconnect and reappropriate those different parts has been really important. Um, yeah. I want to ask a little bit about your experience as an adoptee coach, but before I do that, I want to ask a little bit about advice that you have for parents in of a transracial adoptee. Do you think that it, would you say it should be a requirement or at least like strongly encourage that they should live in a diverse city? Or do you think that there are parents who can succeed with their uh, with their transracial adoptee in a predominantly white community, what what are your thoughts on on supporting um, an adoptee who has been disconnected from uh, so much more than just their birth family? I personally, I feel parents should be surrounded by diversity and people who look like the child um, because they didn't. The children didn't ask about being moved around. And very often it's the child who's being made uncomfortable. 
But if you are willing to adopt a child, I feel that you should also put yourself in that discomfort of learning that child's background and diversity. So I know a lot of family would say it's not, they're not familiar with that community and it's it's not comfortable to move into that space, but you are asking your child to move into that space, to your own space. So why can't you do the same thing for yourself? And, you know, I, I always use this analogy to a lot of people and I, you know, I think it might be controversial, but I always say to people, imagine yourself being taken away to Africa disconnected from everything that is white and being taken into a black country and don't have any connection with the white community how would you feel wow and just sit with that and see what <laughs> what's how you feel and i think that is an important thing because if it, if you are able to see how you'd feel in that community if it was you was taken in the other reverse situation, then I think you will be able to understand a little bit more what your child is feeling, being taken away from everything that they know. It's being stripped out of their own identity and culture. We see it from the other way so often that like in your situation from Madagascar to France, it's like from from Africa to Europe or to the US, but you're right. If you think about it for just a few seconds, you would understand it instead of just thinking like putting all the the support and praise on the adoptive parents, which it is it is a great thing, but to recognize the difficulty and the trauma that comes mm-hmm. with it. Yeah. So any other things that you would say to parents of a transracial adopted child? I think it's about education as well. I think, you know, sometimes parents go into the adoption for many different reasons um, and maybe thinking that, oh, it's going to be the same as raising my own child that I've given birth to, but it's not going to be the same. Um, And even if it's a baby, you know, from the work I did and from all the podcasts I've interviewed quite a lot of adoptees, even as a baby, that child is still being separated from his mother, there is still going to be trauma, no matter at what age that separation is. So having that understanding and educating yourself around trauma and anything else to do with the child, I think it's really important for that relationship that you're going to build with your child. So if you can prepare yourself enough in advance, I know uh, some agencies do prepare, but not always the case. But I would say for the, the parents to do their own work. Uh, and also that's the other thing I think is important, um, doing your own work in terms of um, growth. I think you need to be, if you've had some trauma in the past, because that also can bring up your own trauma later on by bringing a child into your own world. So, um, so that part of the preparation that, you know, make sure that you've also done your own work, that you're not going to be triggered later on. And that can also impact on the child, your relationship with the child. Um, so, yeah, preparation, I think, is important in terms of cultural, in terms of um, 
you know, practicality um, material things that you can bring to the child. I mean, for example, in, in my parents' house, there was nothing that decoration, for example, little things like that. We didn't have nothing that looked like uh, cultural um, that was related to my own country. So there is nothing that I could relate even in the house. So even little things like that, that you could bring in your house will be helpful. Yeah, that's that's good advice because the the physical environment re- reflects the people that are in the house, and you want to bring in elements of the culture so that everybody feels at home. So it feels like a new family mm-hmm. because you're bringing in someone who is not from your same background. So, as an adoptee coach, what are some common themes that you encounter with your work with these adoptees? Um, I think that definitely around self-worth is a big one Um, because like I said earlier a lot of the adoptees try to assimilate themselves to the family and very often they don't want to be making too much noise not to make to make feel too big or too different so they minimize themselves and I think that really impacts the self-worth as they grow on um, so I've also got a lot of issues around boundaries, uh, and that again is linked to the self-worth because that we tend to be people pleaser by trying to not disturb people too much, then we become people pleaser, and then we don't know how to set boundaries. Um, so that's a big one, I think. Um, the guilt and shame. As well, it's been, yeah. Say that, say that one more time. I interrupted you. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no. I was gonna say the guilt and the shame. Uh, that's come back very often because you know, in in the environment where you're being adopted, very often people don't understand why you've been feeling the way you're feeling, and they're like, "Oh, you should be feeling grateful to have been adopted. Your life will don't be the same." So then you feel guilty because oh, I'm not feeling grateful. Um, and then it, that brings shame as well because, oh, I'm so different to everybody else. Um, yeah, it's it's, it's it's an heavy emotions that a lot of adoptees carry with them. And I think that's his part. I mean, I, as a coach, I don't go into all those deep traumatic issues because that is part of what they do in therapy. Uh, as a coach, I will only take them from where they are today to where they need to be in their life. Whereas a therapist will take them from where they are and look back, trying to heal all the trauma from the past. So it's a very different part of the journey, uh, I would say, between a therapy and a coach. Um, what else would you, would come back? I think a relationship has been coming back a lot we having difficulty building healthy relationship because of the abandonment and rejection that we've experienced in our journey we we don't know how to to feel safe in a relationship and very often also we self-sabotage ourselves because we are so afraid of being abandoned that we will reject people even if it's an healthy relationship because we are we've got that fear running 
through our vein that you know someone is going to abandon our ourself again I've heard some of what you've described before that the people pleasing is very common sabotaging relationships it's almost like there's this safety mechanism that if I can force the worst scenario outcome then then I'm sort of in control in a way and it's it's there are these patterns that have developed in order to feel safe and it's just it's you don't even realize that you're doing it until you talk mm. to someone like you or talk to a therapist. Yeah. So one other question about the your coaching experience. Have you coached adoptees in the UK and the US or pretty much exclusively um, in the UK? At the moment, I've only been in the UK uh, and Europe. But my with my podcast, I've been speaking with a lot of people from the US, interestingly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I just wonder if the themes that come up are different, if the Black experience in the US as an adoptee is different than in the UK or in Europe. I think the theme are very similar, at least from what I understand for the, the podcast. I think it's the team that I've just mentioned, everybody tend to say they've been struggling with those. But I would say I think the Black experience in America is very different to the Black experience in Europe. Um, so again, that would there's a nuance about how people will live their adoption uh, because it's a different history again. And also a lot of the Black adoptee I've spoken to in America, it's domestic adoption. It's not transracial, transnational, international adoption. So there is that, there is a little bit of nuance in their experience that, you know, they have not been flown from a, a completely different culture. They were still in America, being adopted in America. So they don't necessarily have to deal with the cultural sides of things, but I would say they still face the, the racial inequality and uh that kind of racism so those still come up mm -hmm. yeah okay yeah when at the beginning when you were describing your you lost your family and your food and your culture even the way people dress is different the the whole environment is different and if it's a domestic adoption it, the difference wouldn't be as drastic as as drastic as what you experienced definitely so is there anything else that we haven't covered that you would want to share with us? Oh, good question. <laughs> um, no mm, um, I don't know. No, I think I, the only thing I would say is, you know, to parents who are thinking or either in the journey of already having adopted or thinking about adopting is, is really think about the child first. I know you are there, <laughs> yeah. but remember that the child has not asked for any of this. They're just being put in the process and it might be small and then not realize it at the time, but at, when they grow up, the issue will catch them up. So I've the understanding now that there's going to be issue that's coming up with it, the child is it's you know there's I don't think there's any perfect adoption like there's any perfect 
parenting or perfect upbringing. So having that in the back of your mind is, I think it's important because that will help the relationship with the child. And having the open communication throughout the adoption journey um, is also very important. And yeah, I think that's what I would say. <laughs> awesome. Well, Christelle, thank you so much for sharing your advice, your insight and your story with us. It's been awesome to talk to you today. Thank you so much. I really enjoy meeting you and talking to you. So thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Open Adoption Project. We hope you found this content helpful and enjoyable. If so, we would love for you to share it with a friend or an acquaintance that it might help. We'd also love to connect with you on social media. We're on Instagram at Open Adoption Project. Or you can look us up on our website, openadoptionproject.org. Thanks so much for being here with us and learning with us.